Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the show. We are here today with Jessica Genetics. Now, Jessica is an actual scientist focusing on molecular biology, but she's also tapped into the holistic and naturopathic aspect of health as well, which makes for a very interesting conversation. We focus primarily on chronic fatigue as something that both her and I have struggled with in the past. We dig deep into the genetic components of chronic fatigue, mitochondrial dysfunction, the impact our environment has on our energy levels, and much more. So give it a listen. You guys will like this one. And if you haven't already, make sure to join the Telegram. Link will be in the show notes. That's where we have a lot of discussions and honestly get a lot of the topics for these podcast episodes. Godspeed. Jessica, welcome again. We had some technical difficulties, but we're back. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. As we were mentioning, you are a scientist. What type of science did you specialize in or what is your area of work? So I majored in biology and chemistry and um, I've done a lot of microbiology work in my past um, and now I'm moving into more molecular work. And so that is working with uh, like DNA extractions, PCR, qPCR. So I'm doing a lot of that at the lab that I'm in right now. I'm trying to make a diagnostic test as it stands now, but I am overall just interested in biochemistry. So um, going forward, I would like to do research in that area. Gotcha. What made you choose molecular biology? Um, well, it's kind of just what the lab needed at that time. They have a microbiology section and a molecular section. And um, we're just trying to make a test right now. So that's a lot of molecular work and I'm really enjoying it. And molecular work goes more along the lines of biochemical research. Um, The other end of it would be microbiology and bacteria and fungi. And that's interesting, but I'm not passionate about it. So I definitely lean more toward molecular work. Gotcha. A lot of your content on Twitter is a lot more holistic, which is interesting because I feel like there's a huge divide between the non-traditional, non-academic approach to biology and esoteric health, as opposed to the much more traditional route where you are actually in a lab doing some of these PCR tests. You know, I've seen some of your posts and you're really in the thick of it. So what is that dissonance? You know, what were you into first? Were you originally into the more esoteric, natural like avenue of health, the more, uh, I guess you could call it like amateur or were you originally more into the traditional academic biological field? Um, I guess it kind of depends how you look at it. I was raised to look at health in a very holistic and natural way. Um, That's what my mother has always been interested in and she raised me to approach it in the same way. So it was always in the back of my mind, Um, but in terms of what I preferred first, I definitely discovered my passion for science Um, and lab work first. I found that out in high school. And ever since then, it's just been a clear straight shot toward that. Um, And then later on, maybe like a year and a half later, I realized that I really liked approaching health in a natural way, looking at diet, looking at nutrition and my environment. And it all just kind of came together. And um, I was wondering for a little while how I was going to combine the two. But I think um, just going forward, when I end up doing my own research, I would like to look into things that we talk about on Twitter a lot, you know, like the holistic methods and natural methods. Like I would love to do research on grounding and like EMFs. That would be so fun to me. 
Yeah, it's so important too. You know, I came from a very traditional science background, not in my education, but in my upbringing. You know, both of my parents were lab rats. So I was more interested in the pharmacology and the microbiology aspect. And then I got into the esoteric health stuff. Once, you know, that kind of the traditional route kind of hit its peak, was there a specific thing or, you know, a health crisis that caused you to get into like back into the esoteric space or was it just out of interest? Um, it kind of was out of interest initially, just because <clears throat> my mother was, <clears throat> sorry, my, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and then she was able to fix that using nutrition and controlling her environment. And I just watched that unfold. And I thought it was so fascinating that she was able to do that because you really don't hear about people being able to do that much in the scientific space. And once I saw her do that, I started reading the books that she had read, and then I got super interested in it. And at that same time, I was also dealing with my own chronic fatigue. And around that time, I decided that I was just going to try and eradicate it myself because I had originally thought that I was going to be stuck with it forever and that there was nothing that I was going to be able to do about it, um, especially because my dad has chronic fatigue in the same way. And he has had it his whole life and he's, he still has it. So I thought it was something that I was going to have to deal with for a while. And then I realized at this same time that I could probably get rid of it myself. And that's when I started looking um, inward to try and fix that. That is incredible. What were some of the things that your mother was you know, interested in, experimenting in, you know, applying that you think were the real needle movers? Or what was, you know, her approach to treating you know, something as serious as breast cancer? So she did a lot of blood work. Um, she did the Dutch test, and I'm not sure exactly the intricacies of that test, but I know she did some sort of test where she sent off um, a blood sample to a company overseas, and they were able to test that and tell her what kind of chemotherapies would work for her and what kinds would not. And they also were able to tell her what kind of issues she was having from a nutritional standpoint. They told her how to fix her environment, how to change her lifestyle and fix her nutritional gaps. She found out that she had the MTHFR SNP and she was able to take supplements for that. She figured out that she had undermethylation and so she's been trying to fix that as well. So it was a bunch of things, a lot of targeted supplements and environmental changes. That's very interesting. Now, have you looked into your own? Uh, have you done the Dutch test or have you looked at your MTHFR gene um, to see like if you also have that? Because I know with the MT MTHFR mutation, that's a pretty big contributor to a number of health issues, one of which being chronic fatigue and just energy production issues in general. Like if your methylation's fucked up, excuse me, uh, messed up, you can't, you know, uh, properly, uh, I don't know, your, your mitochondria is not functioning properly. Have you looked into that? Yeah, so I tested for my MTHFR and I don't have it, luckily. Um, okay. Just my mother has it and my brother has it, but they, I haven't done the Dutch test either, um, but they were able to figure out what to do for that. Interesting. And that's also really interesting that you said that your father also has chronic fatigue and still has it because, you know, there's this big debate of, of nature versus nurture, you know, genetic versus epigenetic. From your experience, obviously dealing with this firsthand, you know, what is your take on the genetic nature 
of some of these disorders such as chronic fatigue? I think um, a lot of it is um, from an environmental standpoint. I think definitely your genes do affect a lot about us, but um, when it comes down to it, I believe a lot is changeable. If you look at just epigenetics in general, that tells us that our genes are malleable and we can turn them on and off, change their expression. And if something's not working for you, if you know that you have something passed down to you, you can take the steps to overcome that. And I think that's kind of what happened with me is I know my dad has it, um, but I was able to see that he's still struggling with it and realize that if I don't take care of myself and do something about it, I'll end up the same way. And um, now I see that I have been able to change that. So I've been trying to help him as well come overcome that. That's very interesting. I, I see it very similarly, you know, from my understanding, when I was growing up, they say everything's genetic, right? Like hyperactivity, it's all genetics, there's nothing you can do about it. But at the end of the day, genes don't predetermine, they do predispose. And I do see, especially within this space, and I'm sure you see it as well, people tend to take an all or nothing mindset where it's either exclusively your environment or it's exclusively your genetics and there's no wiggle room. When in reality, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of the both. And, you know, I've done something very similar, kind of looking at my genetic predispositions from, you know, my parents and grandparents and then saying, what do I need to do to avoid said issues? Now, something that's really interesting to me, and I was having a discussion with Clark, uh, who's probably one of the most incredible guys I've ever seen within the um, ionosphere, like within the ionic mimicry space. Um, I don't Ionomics, that's what it's called. He's an ionomicist. But uh, he was talking about how certain things like mold toxicity and particularly heavy metals, those can be passed down directly to your children. So, you know, if the mother has a heavy metal exposure, that cadmium, aluminum, whatever it may be, is also being, you know, the, the, the child is also being exposed to that. Now, let's dive into, you know, the actual discussion of chronic fatigue, because that's something I've dealt with and managed to overcome. It's something you've dealt with and managed to overcome. Have you been able to discern a probable root cause in your situation? And have you seen other potential root causes as well? And are there multiple root causes to begin with? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of different causes, um, especially with the introduction of so much blue light and EMF radiation and microwaves. Um, I think that can be a cause that um, people don't think about as much, but there's definitely um, concrete causes like mitochondrial dysfunction that can definitely lead to chronic fatigue. Um, for me, it was the root cause was an Epstein-Barr infection and it caused an overactive immune system, which was depleting my energy and eventually led to mitochondrial dysfunction. Or I believe that I kind of already had some um, with all of the blue light because I didn't think about that much. Um, and I was in school constantly with the blue light and all of my assignments were on the computer. So that was definitely depleting my ability to make ATP. So I think that was a big root cause for me. Do you know what it was for you? Uh, no, uh, unfortunately, but I know it was a myriad of things, but you know, we can always kind of pin it down to it's like, Hmm, I don't have very effective energy production. It seems like, well, you know, where is energy produced in the body? And obviously everything points back to ATP and via experimentations of figuring out ways to improve my like uh, oxidation in general, 
right? Um, in ATP production, I was like, okay, cool. Like I found where the issue is. I don't know what's causing the issue, but in my understanding, um, I just took like a, a shotgun approach as always. And I'm like, what are all of the things that could contribute? And let me approach those. I do think one of it was an overactive immune system. I always had pretty high inflammation, um, which is a big factor. And, you know, I do think there was a contributory aspect of stealth pathogens and potentially mold exposure. And the way that I found that out was through taking um, some antimicrobial peptides. You know, that's kind of like the shotgun approach. It's like, what if I can quell my immune system so it's not going around wreaking havoc on the rest of my body and see if that may be like a contributor. And when I did that, it was the first time that I woke up in the morning. It was LL37 and thymosin alpha-1. And I woke up in the morning and it was the first time that I didn't feel puffy. I didn't feel like I had brain fog. I was able to get right into it and I just perked up. And that was the big, okay, there's something pathogenic about this, uh, which I found very interesting. But for me, it did come down to mitochondria. And I do believe the two primary factors was light environment, EMF environment, and heavy metal. And as we know, those are all synergistic along with parasites. So I just, I found all of those to be contributory. The deeper I dug, the more blurred the line got in terms of what is the root cause. It's actually an amalgamation of root causes, which I found very interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think light environment can be so important with the mitochondria. And I think we're just really trying to learn about the mechanism through which that occurs right now. And I think um, a lot of people underestimate the effect blue light can have on us, um, as well as EMFs. I know that's kind of a new topic right now that everyone's kind of starting to get into, and it's good that people are talking about it more. So I'm um, definitely looking forward to more elucidation of that pathway coming out, because I'm always interested in the pathway, because if I hear blue light is hurting my mitochondria, I want to know why that's happening. Otherwise, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. So I always like to look at the root cause um, because if you're not taking care of your mitochondria and if you think it might be backed up through things like blue light or just nutritional gaps um, affecting your ability to use cofactors and coenzymes, then that can also cause blockages in your pathways and then you don't get that full um, oxidation of things like glucose and fatty acids. Absolutely. That, that's super interesting. And, you know, it's also interesting for you being kind of in that intermediary space where you are in traditional science. And I do believe, you know, my belief and a lot of beliefs out there, you know, especially in our space is that, you know, it's, it's too late. The establishment is too antiquated. There isn't really opportunity for change internally. We, we feel like, you know, the new innovation and information has to come orthogonally from, you know, third parties. I'm curious what your take is. You mentioned, you know, one of your big goals being to have and, you know, conduct some pretty significant studies within the space of EMFs and light diet. Um, how optimistic are you of, you know, being able to do things like that and kind of bring some of these topics that don't really align with the traditional model, uh, from what I understand, and bring them into the fold and, you know, do studies that are a little bit more health-based from a whole, like how, how have you rationalized approaching that? So I am very optimistic for the future. It, I know a lot of people can take this very different ways. Like it may seem like the um, pharmaceutical industry and everything that's going on right now, is just very established and it's not moving. It's very concrete. And it does seem like that, but 
I do think there is hope, but I don't think you can take the traditional approach of doing research and get to that goal. So like most of the grants come through government-funded organizations like the NIH, and they are willing to give you a lot of money if you can prove that you're going to do research that um, will affect people in a good way, but also, you know, it has to align with their goals as well and what they deem as worthy to give you money. So um, for the kind of research that I think I would be doing, it might be a long shot to get money from them. You know, we'll see what happens. But um, in my view, I think that if I'm going to be doing research that doesn't really align with the traditional narrative, I'm probably going to have to fund it myself. And so um, I'm very interested in science, but I've also always had an interest in the market as well and like making a product and things like that. So I'd like to do both simultaneously. And I'm now just starting to dip my feet into that because I realize that I need to, I'm probably going to have to fund this stuff myself. So I'm trying to start dipping my toes into the market, get a product out. And so I'm starting to do that right now and looking at releasing something within like a month or two. But I think it's more detrimental to not be optimistic. And so I just like to look for the best. I agree. And we do know that financials play a big role. I do think there's kind of an over demonization of, you know, how the system works. At the end of the day, it's not that people are evil, why they don't want to fund studies that are like, what does blue light do on a healthy person? And like, how does ginkgo biloba affect, you know, a middle aged or like a, a, a young adult who has properly functioning cognitive abilities? Like At the end of the day, you know, it, sh it has to be kind of saving lives or contributing towards an agenda. That's just how it works. And it's no different in the private sector either. Because, you know, obviously, if we're talking about, you know, blue light and the fact of EMFs, it's like, cool, like, what if we just got funded by like a grounding shoe company and raw opt optics and a red light company, but there's still going to be bias there, right? It's just going to be on the other side. And that's not good either. So I've been really interested in that, you know, how can you go about a non biased funding method for studies that, you know, are significant, right, that are well put together that, you know, fit all the boxes and are, you know, literate to say the least without being biased. But um, I, I'm also in that same boat where, you know, I do think that the product marketplace is important, the private sector is important. And I think most importantly, the audience thing is the most important, like the more that people can make health cool and interesting, which is kind of what we see a lot of people doing in this space, the more demand there will be for that. So I, I find that very interesting. I'm curious, going back and looping on the chronic fatigue, particularly in regards to EBV, what was that timeline, right? So you, you figured out that this root cause was from EBV. How did you figure out, how did you figure out that it was immunological in origin? Um, so I knew that chronic fatigue was a long lasting symptom of it. And I got a test done to see if it was a chronic infection or if it was just something that was waiting in the background to spark back up. And I find, found out that it was a chronic infection and it was going on um, all the time and my system was a little bit overactive with it. And so I was experiencing the chronic fatigue before doing that test. And I did that test to see if, you know, chronic fatigue was stemming from that infection or if it was something else. And it seemed that it was coming from that infection in some way or another. Um, and so then from there, I just started implementing different things to 
help myself overcome it. Gotcha. What were some of those things? Um, so the first couple things I did, I was just kind of dipping my toes in the water because I think a lot of people experience an issue with chronic fatigue where they feel like they don't have the energy to take the first step. And that's kind of how I was viewing it. There were I there was a lot of stuff that I could have done in the beginning, but it's it was a little bit overwhelming. So the first few things I did were I just started resistance training and I did that like three times a week, then up to four, then five, then six. And I found that that helped a lot because if you think about it, you're actually just building mitochondria while you're working out like that when you're building that muscle. And so you're um, getting more mitochondria that can give you more energy in the long term. And so that exercise um, also coupled with an increase in calories because I had been intermittent fasting a lot. And I think that was depleting my energy levels as well. So the exercise increasing my calories and then fixing my diet. I was eating a lot of grains and then I switched to more of a high protein diet. And all of those first initial steps gave me um, the energy to keep going and showed me that something is actually working. And then I went into the more specifics, which were like uh, supplements and environmental changes. Interesting. I, I took a very similar approach and you know we should dig into the dietary aspect as well as intermittent fasting. But first off, you know, I kind of want to go over what is the symptomology of chronic fatigue, because uh, it, it is different in some people, some people experience it differently. What was it for you? Was it, you know, just full across the board, low level energy? Was it crashing midday, a mixture of the two? Um, so for the most part, in the morning, after a full night of rest, I had a good amount of energy. Um, but near the end of the day, it definitely dropped off uh, pretty sharply. Um, I, the sun wouldn't set yet, but I knew that I had a lot of homework to get done and things like that, but my energy levels would absolutely drop near the end of the day, which was very hard to work with. And then as soon as the sun would set, it was kind of like the light was just telling my brain, okay, it's time to go to bed. Like, and then from that point on, um, after the sunset, I was just extremely tired, could not hold a coherent sentence or conversation, basically anything that was, um, informational in any way. So it was um, hard to work with on that point. And it was the kind of fatigue where you couldn't just rest for a little while. I couldn't just lay down for a little while and feel better or take a nap and feel better. I needed a full night of sleep to actually feel like I had enough energy again. And then even when I was waking up, I had this sleep tracker and I realized that I was only getting like 10 or 15 minutes of deep sleep per night, which is very little. And then on top of that, I noticed that I was waking up extremely groggy. And it's actually crazy to think back to now because I remember like my mother telling me that she would have conversations with me in the morning, like within 30 minutes of waking up and I would have no recollection of them. Like I, I did not remember that we were talking. She would tell me things about her day and I just would not remember them. And that was crazy to hear. And I think back to it now because like now I know that now that I've overcome this, um, the morning is when I'm thinking the clearest and when I have the most energy and when I'm the most creative, like now it's at the point where I'm waking up and within 10 minutes I'm talk typing a Substack post or something like, and I have just mental clarity in the morning now. So it's crazy to think back that I had that grogginess back then, but 
what were the symptoms for you? Yeah, it's very similar. For me, it was that same thing where it's, I have a lot of energy. I always had a lot of energy, but it was almost like it was always short lasting. So I had a window of, of high energy and I never stayed up past 10 p.m. to study in college ever. I, I never could. I just I simply could not stay up and, and perform cognitively then, um, you know, even socializing at night. You know, if I wanted to go out and socialize, I would have to be sipping caffeine, like just ripping energy drinks or coffee. So I just realized that, you know, everybody is able to go out and socialize and maintain a certain level of energy at night. And I just I couldn't. Um, and so my solution was intermittent fasting as well. And it gave me that same short burst of energy. But after I had my first meal, I was I was it was horrible. And I think a lot of that comes down to carbohydrate oxidation as well and glucose oxidation. But, um, you know, looking at that, I kind of realized that I was running on cortisol. I was running on norepinephrine and I would just crash horribly. And, you know, and for better or worse, I was able to instead of trying to pursue the root causes, it's like I'll figure it out eventually. But there was a point where it's like, OK, this is just like who I am. So I kind of just built my life around how can I just get a bunch of stuff done in like those two hours and then just spend the rest of the day kind of resting and really not doing much of uh of energy wise like i remember because i would do work for like two hours i was working during school so i'd like work and then i would do my homework in class and then i would just like cook for the rest of the day and i'd watch like tv so it, it was horrible um those were the similar symptoms the waking up groggy was a big one and it's something that you know i still deal with but one thing that i did realize was environment was such a big factor because when I from Minnesota and obviously in Minnesota during the winter, you know, you're getting maybe like eight hours of sunlight maximum. And I was always so much worse in the winter, just so much low energy. It was like I was a different person. And even now, you know, when I live in a city versus when I live in a low EMF, high sunlight environment, that was really the big factor. So one thing that actually helped me and people, you know, especially the skin people uh, are not going to like this was uh, tanning beds in the winter, a low, low density, like low UVB or UVA, UVB uh, tanning bed was really effective at just, you know, improving my mitochondrial function, as well as they're called happy lights. So I, I knew it was a light factor as well. Um, but that, that was the main thing. And I, I think honestly, today, I don't really know if I solved my chronic fatigue, or if I was just able to weed out some of the problems that were aggravating it and just kind of, you know, cope and build something around that. But very similar. Um, diet was a big thing as well. So let's dive into that. You mentioned that you were eating a lot of grains. What impact do you think that had on this syndrome, this disorder of chronic fatigue? Um, I think the diet aspect does matter a lot. Like grains, I believe, are very nutrient devoid. So instead of eating meat and things that are providing with uh, nutrients and actual good protein that I can utilize, um, I was instead getting my calories from carbohydrates um, and grains, which are not as satiating. And so I was eating more of them and I was missing out um, I had a bunch of nutritional gaps. So I think once I changed my diet like that, I moved away from grains and bread and I focused more on ground beef and chicken and a lot of salmon and fish. Um, I think my energy levels got much better because um, the high protein aspect is very important for just maintaining your mitochondria and your body overall. If you're missing any 
amino acids, your body is just going to start degenerating. So that's why I think the vegetarian and vegan diet can also be very harmful in these kinds of situations where you're putting yourself in a nutritional depletion. And I think that definitely had a big effect on me because I felt much better once I started re-supplementing something like B vitamins. I realized that I must have had a B vitamin deficiency because once I added in a surplus of them, I felt much better. And now that I've corrected that deficiency, I know that I can back off from the supplements and just focus on it from diet. But I think that without the adequate diet, you can run into a lot of issues and you can run into blockages when it comes to not having the right cofactors or coenzymes to act with the enzymes that do the work in your mitochondria. Absolutely. Were there specific B vitamins that you were focusing on? So I was taking a B complex for a while because I realized that B vitamins were important for energy production. But um, in the B complex, I really didn't feel much of a difference from taking it. Only once I doubled up basically on thiamine or theamine vitamin B1, then I started to feel a drastic change in my energy levels because the B vitamin that I was taking only had 50 milligrams of it and it was thiamine hydrochloride. And then I took 100 extra milligrams per day on top of that 50. And so taking that high dose of thiamine, I think, corrected my deficiency, got my enzymes working again. And then now I'm able to back off of that higher dose and just focus on maintaining it through my diet. How long did it take to correct that deficiency? That's a good question. I felt a difference in my energy within, I believe, four or five days of upping my dosage like that. And I noticed it so quickly and that made me very consistent with the supplementation. I think I was taking that higher dose for at least like two months. And then I started toning it down and realized that I was maintaining the energy without needing to supplement it. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I had a very similar approach for me, especially of course, we all fall into the trap of, you know, going keto, going intermittent fasting. And for a lot of people, it's going vegan. And we don't realize that that makes you feel better in the beginning. And then you kind of get trapped into it. And you slowly start, you know, becoming less functional, your your or your metabolism slows down. The B vitamins were a primary factor for me as well, particularly B1, uh, thiamine, coenzymated thiamine, I use a lot of brewer's yeast, and then uh, B7 as well. B7, and then eventually vitamin B3, I realized that an issue with me was a, you know, it came down to NMN, um, excuse me, NAD, and, you know, including vitamin B3 in an effective manner, in a proper manner, you know, consuming it with carbohydrates, consuming it in an environment where I was relatively depleted of, uh, you know, PUFAs in particular, that was probably one of the biggest factors. And like they say, you know, caffeine energize or like staves off uh, fatigue, but B vitamins and B1 in particular actually helps you produce energy at a functional and mechanistic level. I found that to be very true. And I had a very similar approach as well with diet. And I think this is interesting because I'm sure a lot of people will have that where it's like, I was eating so many vegetables. I was eating just so many raw vegetables because, you know, they say the enzymes and vegetables, the nutrients and vegetables, but people don't like take into consideration those vet, those nutrients really aren't doing much if they're bound up in anti-nutrients, right? So I was having a lot of nutrients from like a chronometer standpoint, but from a bioavailability standpoint, it was really low. And having an imbalanced amino acid profile, only eating muscle meats, as opposed to having kind of nose to tail, 
one thing which will be great for people out there to experiment with and see if this is an, an, an amino acid issue is supplementing with collagen and gelatin, obviously, but also essential amino acids. I found that essential amino acids were one of the best cognitive enhancers that I could consume. Those combined with exogenous ketones were highly effective. And as you probably know, you know, all of our neurotransmitters are founded, foundationally built off of those amino acids. But um, the last thing when it comes to diet that was really the eye opener for me is that in the fitness world, we're kind of psyoped in thinking that we need to eat food that is less effective at giving us energy, right? Like slow acting carbs, high fiber diets. And if you have a compromised gut like I did, you're going to be wreaking havoc. You're going to have so much inflammation. The amount of energy that's required to burn and, you know, utilize those calories is going to be a net negative. So when I switched over to eating a leaner diet, uh, not a leaner diet, but a more efficient diet of meat and fruit, that's when I noticed, I, th I think, the big difference. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think diet can have more of an impact than people think. And it can be hard to take that first step into changing your diet. Um, because I think, you know, the the fad diets can be very fun to try out. Um, but I think long term, you can, like you said, get stuck in them, and it can end up doing more damage. And I think it's good to cycle them and try things out and see just what works best for you. And just be aware that there are ways to eat that cause gaps in the diet. And as long as you're aware of them and um, taking steps to make sure it doesn't get too bad, um, I think it's interesting to try out new diets and cycle them. Um, but just making sure that you're hitting all of the right macro areas is important. That's spot on. Uh, the biggest trap that people get into is tying their identity with their diets, right? You go vegan, all of a sudden you join these vegan Facebook groups. All of your friends are now vegan. You're going to a vegan convention. Same with keto, same with carnivore, same with any diet. And now you are there because of an emotional reason, because you have a philosophy behind it, because you have a community behind it. And now you're kind of stuck there. Even if you get exposed to new facts, to new information, you feel like you're having to give something up. I know so many people that have been excommunicated from their vegan friend groups for saying that, hey, my body needs some folate, you know, my body needs some choline. So that is probably the one thing that everybody should avoid entirely is tying your identity to any one type of food or diet and experiment with them all. What is your diet like now? Or I guess more importantly, how do you approach food? So my diet has been pretty consistent for a while now. Um, I just find that I don't function very well if I have a lot of grains in my diet. Um, but um, I am like Mediter Mediterranean heritage. So um, I do love to incorporate a lot of meats, but I don't try to avoid vegetables or anything like that. So I, like my mother and I were very big on like a cucumber, tomato, cheese salad. That's what we like um, in the summers. But I eat a lot of meat, definitely. That's usually what I am bringing for lunch if I'm working, um, especially with the blue light that I experience there. But um, definitely meat-focused. Um, I eat a lot of dairy products, a lot of raw milk. Um, I try not to use protein powders, but I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with using them either. Um, I just try to keep it like a very whole food diet. That's good. I, that's interesting that you bring up your 
heritage having an effect uh, an effect on your diet what's the philosophy behind that with you like why why do you do that it's i feel like it's a complicated area um it's just something that i'm now starting to look at and i figure that i am very heavily italian and a little bit um <laughs> like nordic so um, I'm trying to kind of emulate that diet and I'm just starting to dip my toes into maybe considering trying a Mediterranean diet. The only issue that I see looking at the Mediterranean diet is that there's not many meats in it and that's, and I love to eat meat. So it seems like, I don't know, I'll probably give it a try, but I think that following your lineage when it comes to eating can be a good tool. Um, but the other thing is that I'm not living anywhere in that area. So the light is different. Mm. The food is different. So I'm trying to find a sweet spot between them and hopefully find a balance at some point. But I do eat a lot of Italian centered foods, a lot of tomatoes, you know, like I said, a lot of vegetables. Yes. Yes. Salami. Exactly. <laughs> um, that's so, so and that's also where the carbs come from, the pasta and my dad makes pizza. We're very Italian. So that's where it comes from on that end. But I I do make sure that if I am engaging in those kinds of foods, I'm making sure to also prioritize protein at the same time because it can get very nutrient depleted. So I'm trying to find that sweet spot right now. That's super interesting. And that's interesting that you bring up pizza and pasta because that was going to be my next question. Um, but first, yeah, I want to give my two cents on that as well. That, that does have a factor, right? Like our heritage does have a factor. Sure, I think our digestive system, it would take about 50,000 years to like develop any significant um, variations, but that's not always the case. We've seen it with a lot of the Nordic countries and, you know, kind of the, 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 the middle caucus area where they were able to evolve to be a lot more tolerant to lactose, right? Uh, a lot earlier on because that was just what they needed for sustenance. And there's also a uh, kind of like survival of the fittest factor there. If you're better able to tolerate milk in an environment where you really only have cows, you're going to be more likely to survive. So that's a factor. I do think it gets muddled when it comes to where are you living now, right? Like what environment are you in now? As well as people like rare, very rarely have a direct lineage. Like for me, you know, I'm Persian and German and those foods are entirely different, right? So that that's tough as well. I do try to eat hereditarily accurate. Um, but you know, for me, it's it's also pretty difficult, you know, it's hard to find baba ganoush down here. So um, that's interesting. Now, when you mentioned location based eating, as in where you're eating now, what type of factors play a role in how your body metabolizes food? Just like, what is the logic behind you should eat food that is local to your current environment? I think a lot of the reasoning behind it comes from the type of light frequencies and wavelengths that are used to grow the food in that area. And it can get a little bit more voodoo depending on how familiar you are with this topic. Um, but I do believe that, you know, our food holds energy and, um, you know, we're mostly water. So I do believe that energy can be transmitted through us because water is very conductive. So, um, I think it does have an effect, but for me, the mechanism is still, it still needs to be better elucidated for me to really give it a ton of ground. Um, so that's something that I do want to keep looking into though. 
Okay, interesting. Yeah, it always does come down to light and water from what I've seen. Now, going back to the pizza and pasta, a big thing for me was cutting gluten out of my diet. Now, do I think gluten is the worst thing? No, it's a natural bundle of proteins. But I do think the fact that our environments naturally destroy our gastrointestinal system, you know, they increase intestinal permeability, which is then exacerbated by a giant protein like gluten, that um, most people are better off without it. You know, I, I recommend to most people, it's like, it wouldn't hurt for you to avoid wheat. Now, I'm curious about you and, you know, about the Mediterranean area. You know, a lot of the blue zones do incorporate a lot of gluten. What is your logic there? What is your stance on it? Um, I have my thoughts, but I'm curious to hear yours as a pizza and pasta respecter. So I think it has a lot to do with where that food is coming from. Um, I definitely try to avoid it if it's going to be something that's like mass produced. But, you know, my dad has all these recipes. He makes his stuff from scratch. So I'm very confident in the source there. And I have never had any serious issue with gluten. I've never been someone that has a lot of gut issues. Um, so I've always been able to tolerate it pretty well. But I do know that a lot of people have issues with gluten. And I do find that if I am consuming breads that are mass produced and just on the shelf in the grocery store, not organic, anything like that, I do have issues with it. Um, and so I just try to stay as clean as possible. I am learning how to make bread right now for the cases when I do want something like that. But I think the source is very important. But like you said, there are people who are just more sensitive to it in general. And I think it just depends on the person. Mm -hmm. What type of wheat are you using? What type of flour are you using that would make it different than say, you know, store-bought bread? So right now I'm just experiment, uh, experimenting with different kinds, but I think eventually I would like to get to the point where I'm milling my own wheat and grinding it myself. And then I would buy whole wheat and make bread that way. That's in the future, definitely. But I think like that kind of thing attracts me for some reason. I like the idea of baking from scratch and all of that. So I think in the future, if I'm going to be consuming a lot of bread or something like that, I would go that route. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of merit to that. I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest things is the relationship that you have with food. I feel I, I just like can't get myself to buy food from supermarkets anymore. It's like the closer you are to that root cause, there's some something deep to it, even if it's hypothetically the same food knowing where that food comes from, doing it yourself, working for that food has a significant factor that can't be understated. Now, when it comes to gluten, uh, for me, and I'm sure this will be you know helpful to some people out there, hopefully, but I never had any gut issues with gluten, right? You know, I'd drink a bunch of IPAs, I'd go and have a pizza with a Jimmy John sandwich, like that was my go-to. But the next morning, and sometimes two days after, because that's the time it takes to kind of fully be processed, I would have really, really puffy sinuses, I would have horrible brain fog. And I found out that was one of the primary symptoms, you know, that gluten, if you have intestinal permeability, seeps into your blood and, you know, gets deposited there and wreaks havoc. But one thing that I find interesting, because everyone's always like, I was eating, you know, croissants every day in Italy and like I had no issues, but I go home and I have one beer and my stomach hurts. I do think that the pesticides obviously play a factor, as you mentioned, but also the type of wheat that they're using. I, I do like, uh, I'd say probably 90% of the wheat in the United States was from a, like an artificial variation, a genetic modification, modification that was made in the 60s to make it more resilient to new habitats and harsher environments. 
And the way that they did that was by increasing the density of this really structurally strong and sturdy and resilient protein, which is gluten. So, you know, unfortunately, for better, that made it more resilient to the environment. I'm sure it saved a lot of people from starvation, but, you know, it definitely was is equally resilient to our digestion. So I do find that really interesting. Um, I assume you like sourdough. Uh, is that like kind of your go-to? Yeah, that's definitely my go-to. Um, I find that it's probably easier on the body. Um, I have read a lot of people that say they can handle sourdough a lot better because of that fermentation. And I think it's um, easier to know that there's less going on in the bread if it's sourdough and if you trust the source, if you know a bakery. That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, I also have found no issues with sourdough. And I know a lot of people that are, you know, borderline celiac. And if they get a quality sourdough that has been fermented for that full 24 hours, a lot of that gluten is neutralized and broken down, which is great. Um, you know, speaking of fermentation, I believe I've seen you talk about kefir um, and incorporating probiotics into your diet. Is that something that you prioritize? Um, I think um, if we're talking in regard to chronic fatigue, it's not something that played a major role for me. But I think overall, um, it definitely has. I like incorporating kefir a lot. Just I made this huge thread on all the various random, seemingly random things that kefir can help you with um, just because of those probiotic strains. But I definitely love kefir and I try to drink it um, once a day um, whenever I can get it. Um, and then I also love sauerkraut or anything fermented and I try to implement those as well. And I think um, I have found that I do experience more energy and like a clearer mind um, when I consume these things. And I like to start my day consuming them um, and start my stomach off right if I know that I'm going to be consuming something that may be disadvantaged to me later on. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I say that because probiotics and a specific form of probiotics was actually a part of my nootropic stack for a while because it gave me such mental clarity. And I think a lot of that comes down to some of these strains like lactobacillus that is one anti-inflammatory. It's like very inhibitory to your, like inflammatory responses, which for me was the primary cause of brain fog. But two, their abilities to stimulate, you know, even cannabinoid and opioid receptors. And I've been digging into that. I know like we're kind of ancillary to the repeat uh, followers. And a lot of them are like, you know, no bacteria is good bacteria. But I definitely found it to be effective by um, incorporating, I guess, you know, looking at it from a hereditary standpoint as well, like more sauerkraut, the more, more, more sauerkraut that I include in my diet, typically, the better off I am. I also don't have a histamine issue. I know a lot of people have histamine intolerances, and that can cause, you know, extended inflammation across the board. But um, I definitely have found that to be effective. Now, do you feel that your chronic fatigue is entirely in remission to the point where you can kind of go and live your life and you're not doing anything proactively or preemptively? Or are there still things that you do to keep it within your control, with, like to keep it non-problematic? I do believe that right now I have conquered it pretty much and it's at bay. But I do know that if I pull back on the things that I do to keep it at bay, it will come back. Um, like just recently, um, with this full-time job I've been, um, at constantly, the lights in there are extremely harsh. I have to prioritize going outside in order to get sunlight. 
um, and I have to make sure that I'm grounding and I'm eating a good diet. So I definitely, with all of this artificial light that I've been experiencing, I do feel a difference in my energy. And if I'm not on top of it and I'm not taking care of it, I do feel like it will come back. Like just recently, I felt like I had accidentally induced some cellular dehydration to myself. And I talked about that a little bit on Twitter and on Instagram. And I just think I was neglecting the sun a bit. You know, there was a lot going on at work that week. I had a lot of qPCR to do, a lot of um, focus in the lab, and I wasn't able to get outside. And then I was super exhausted after work. So I wasn't prioritizing the sun. I wasn't grounding as much. And within three or four days, I felt this extreme thirst. And I realized that I wasn't prioritizing the sun and I wasn't taking care of myself the way I normally do. And then I felt that cellular dehydration come in. And with that, I felt this fatigue come back. So I do feel like it can come back if I don't stay on top of it. But on the other hand, I am in a very harsh environment constantly. Um, What about you? Do you feel like it's gone for yourself? So I do think part of it is I've just kind of gaslighted myself into believing that I'm super resilient. And it sounds really, you know, coy and cliche. But it's so true. Because when I was neurotic about this stuff, where it's like, if I mess up, I'm screwed. Like I have one donut, and I'm not going to be able to think for the next two days. And that self perpetuates itself, right? It, it self um, embellishes. But now, you know, I do believe that I am just i stacked up enough resiliency points where I think I can do some pretty crazy stuff, you know, stay up late, wake up super early, even like go out. And I my diet's always super clean. That's just something that like, I don't find any type of joy uh, from eating shitty food. So that I'm sure is like a big weight puller. But even if you know, I'm overtraining or anything like that, I feel like I'm pretty resilient. The only thing that I think catches up to me is when I am in a toxic environment for an extended period of time. If I'm not constantly grounded, if I'm not in the sun and in the ocean, like extensively, if I'm not getting that remineralization and, you know, those electron balancing, that's when I think it creeps back up on me. And, you know, I'm okay with telling myself that because that's just going to keep me from going to the city anyway. But I notice it because I'll go to the city for a month or two months. And by the end of it, my anxiety is higher. My brain fog's higher. I'm less productive. I'm less effective as a person. And it embellishes itself across the board. That's probably the biggest one. Let me think of anything else. Um, If I were to like drop all of, you know, my nutrition and light diet and grounding for a few months, that's when I think it would come back. But that kind of ties back into the city thing. But no, I, I, I just genuinely think that humans are resilient. You know, if you know the risk profile of anything that you're doing, um, and you actively kind of build up those points, like I said, get some get some dollars in the bank, you can tolerate a lot more. And I think people would benefit from thinking about it that way, um, as opposed to being super neurotic. But I, I think there is a point of ignorance, like you said, and knowing when you can be attuned and say that, hey, listen, maybe I do have some cellular dehydration going on is also important. But like everything in this space, it comes down to a delicate balance. And humans are not very good at um, kind of taking things objectively. It's it's very much all or nothing. So that's that's my two cents. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think if I were to um, stop prioritizing my diet and let some nutritional gaps seep back in, um, I would absolutely feel the same uh, chronic fatigue that I was before. And especially the light. It's crazy how much of an impact 
it has. And I didn't realize how much of an impact it was having until I went from being in the sunlight constantly from that little bit of summer that I had after the school year ended and then right into the job where they have these I don't know if it's just this lab, but the lights are so harsh. It's crazy. And I I do think it has a huge effect. And so I do my best to counteract that um, when I'm outside. But um, light is a big factor, definitely. And I think um, I am resilient as well because it didn't, it didn't really affect me for like four full days is when I noticed that extreme thirst coming in weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the fatigue didn't set in until, um, like the fifth day. And then I was getting like headaches. And by that time I had realized it and was counteracting it. So I do think there is some resiliency. And like you said, you can stack up points in a way, um, especially if you're like building up free electrons in your body from grounding and things like that. I couldn't agree more. I, when I originally started approaching this, it was always very rational. It was always very pharmacological. It was always based exclusively off of mechanisms. But the deeper I get into this, and I think this is a natural progression for most people, but the placebo and nocebo effect can't be understated. And in a lot of times, that's the best case scenario. People are like, oh, it's just placebo. It doesn't matter. But in the case that something is placebo, that's great because then you're having no risk profile, right? If it's having no effect, there's no risk, but you're still getting those benefits. So um, I'm kind of, you know, maybe I'm just spending too much time on Twitter, but I definitely, you know, see merit in that. And I, and I do find it to be effective. But um, Jessica, I really appreciate you coming on. I've been kind of following along uh, with what you're doing in the lab. A lot of it does go over my head, but what are some things that you're interested in right now from an academic or scientific standpoint? Um, so right now, let's see. From an academic standpoint, I've just been, you know, a lot of the lab work is just techniques um, and like things like qPCR and seeing how it actually works behind the scenes and looking at how we can utilize these techniques to make panels that are diagnostic is very interesting. Um, but also I've been kind of talking to my coworkers and like my mentor and stuff at work about some of the more esoteric things like fixing your vision. That's something that I've been trying to do lately. And it's funny because I, it's like I have to tell them about it because I try <laughs> to keep the lights off as much as I can. And then they're, they come in and they're like, why are the lights off in here? And they see me wearing these yellow lensed glasses and my computer screen is red and they just think it's weird. So I end up having to tell them about it. And it's funny because they don't believe me at first, but then when I start getting into it and telling them how we can completely control our bodies, they're like, okay, maybe that'll work. Like I'll put up with the darkness and it's funny. (laughs) It's so funny. I see it all the time. And a lot of people ask me, they're always like, like, I try to tell people like to do this and to do that. And they don't listen. Like, how do I do it? And I'm like, don't tell them, like, just do it. If you do something with a certain level of conviction, and that's, that's going to breed interest, right? Like if you're walking around with red light glasses on, looking, you know, kind of funny, your, your screen is like dark amber, people are going to catch on. And I think if you're able to back that up, then with real data points, real benefits and features that affect them, as opposed to the traditional scientific jargon, it really goes a long way. So um, I'm sure you'll have that lab turned around in no time, there'll be some big red light panels up in there. That's awesome. Well, Jessica, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for shining some light on a number of things, but particularly chronic fatigue. 
Um, everybody, check out Jessica on Twitter. She got a great amount of content on there, and as well as Instagram, if you want to see behind the scenes of some lab work. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for having me. It's been great.